0: kingdom of heaven shall be likened to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Now five of them were wise and five were foolish. Those who were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them, but the wise took oil with, in their vessels with their lamps. But while the bridegroom was delayed, they all slumbered and slept. In the holy name of Jesus. Amen. We like to call this parable the parable of the wise and foolish virgins. That's because when we read and hear parables, we always ask, who am I in this parable? And what am I supposed to be doing? And what's the final judgment of the parable? We're looking for, I guess, the story's uh, moral as if it's a, a parable is like a fable from Aesop. What are we supposed to be learning here? We also think that everything in the parable has to correspond to something. And then we get lost in the details, or if you're a theologian trying to figure out how to preach a parable, trying to find your way out of the riddle. What's the answer? And in this case, how not to suffer the horrible fate of the foolish virgins who were locked out of the wedding feast. Probably the first parable that we encounter in the scripture is actually from David, King David's pastor, Nathan. And he shows us how God uses parables to drive the hearer to conviction and despair. Maybe you remember the story's detail. This is after the Bathsheba incident, and Nathan comes to David, tells a story about a rich man and a poor man and a little ewe lamb. And they don't really correspond directly to David and Uriah and Bathsheba. But that's not why David or Nathan told the story to David. That David would get all hung up in the details and try to figure out who am I and what's what's the point. Right away, David got it. The man who took the you from the poor man should die. To which Nathan responded, You are the man. You could get hung up in all the parables details and Should you be calling Bathsheba a little ewe lamb? And is is she really the possession of a poor man? Or was Uriah a rich man really? And get all hung up on that. No, David got the point. The man who took the poor little ewe lamb from from the poor man deserves to die, to which Nathan says, you are the one. Back to this parable. It is true that we collectively should be understood as the virgins. And the distinguishing factor between some and others is wisdom And foolishness. Jesus indicates this as either having or not having oil vessels for the delayed bridegroom so that the lamps stay lit until he comes. Of course, there's all sorts of debate through the last millennia since Jesus spoke these words about what is this and what is that. Is the lamp the capacity of humans to believe and then the oil is faith? Maybe the lamps are faith, and then God fills them with the oil of his grace. Or maybe the light and the lamp and the oil are all Jesus. Answer that question, and then you'll learn what you must do to be ready for Jesus when he comes, so that you're not locked out of the wedding feast when the bridegroom calls. So, just like with the wheat and the tares, and with the sheep and the goats, so also here you're either wise or foolish. The bridegroom is delayed, all slumber and sleep, the foolish have no oil for the lamps, you can't buy it after the fact, and without the oil, the door to the wedding is shut to you. All true. Watch, therefore, no one knows the day or the hour that the Son of Man is coming. To which you can really only respond then, what do I need to do? How then can I be saved? Well, and to answer that, then you get all hung up on the lamps and the oil and what you need to do, but then you might miss Jesus altogether. That's what the foolish get caught up in. They get lost in it. Where to buy the oil, how to stay lit for the journey. And they miss the point. This is how it is for the Christian life. We always are looking for ways to live out the life that Jesus has given us by our baptism, like Jackson this morning. Uh, But, Generally speaking, people come up with their own ways. They say, I'll do this and I'll do that. And it's true. We're given as Christians freedom to choose uh, many of our vocations and how, how we live in those vocations. But He doesn't choose, or we don't choose to be male or female. We don't choose our spouse. God gives them to us. Right? We don't choose to have children. God gives children when and where He wills. So He actually puts us in vocations too without our choice. But then again, in those vocations, we can choose to live out that life according to his word in different ways. But does that really keep us awake? Does that give us the light we need to stay with Jesus until he comes? Probably not. We don't find that satisfactory. So then we'll look to other gurus. We'll find people that have given us the kind of rigorous Christian life that we're looking for. Maybe you think, as some have suggested, that we need to reclaim the order of St. Benedict and live in cloistered communities separate from the world, taking care of our own and really focusing on the Word, but to the exclusion of our neighbor. Or maybe there's some other teacher that you've found that seems to give your life meaning and purpose, and you hope that that's going to be enough for when Jesus comes. Of course, you can come to the pastor I have all sorts of ideas for you of how I think you can be best prepared for our Lord's coming. And hopefully, they're not just my own personal opinion, but they are actually the appointed means by which God has established to give, sustain, and keep you in the faith until he comes again. That is to be persistent in prayer and in God's word, to confess the faith, to sing the hymns of the church, to be gathered together in liturgy, to remember your baptism, of course, to receive the supper. These are all things that you do, but, of course, they weren't appointed by you. They're not self-appointed. They they don't come from gurus. Even pastor is not your your, uh, guru. Instead, these are the means that Jesus has appointed. But are they sufficient? Do they do what they promise? The parable, ultimately, is not about what you must do how you can fill your oils, and how you can be best prepared. It is about what God in Christ Jesus has done and is doing for you, even today. Remember, he started the parable, the kingdom of heaven is like. Thus, it's really about the king and the groom and the kingdom prepared for you. Jesus had already warned the disciples about why the parables had been given. He warns them about reading them in the way of finding all the details and trying to figure out what you must do. That is the way of the Pharisee. Jesus has instead, seeing they may not see and hearing they may not hear. In other words, those details in the parable often are, even by Jesus' own, well, his own statement, meant to distract you from the thing that is actually needful, to drive you to despair and conviction, just as Nathan did with David. David. You can't read the parable as a moral tale or as historic prophecy or even really just a parallel of what the Christian life looks like. That's putting you at the center of the parable, making you the subject of the kingdom rather than the one who's bringing about the kingdom, the one who is the groom to marry you, his virgin bride, and the one who inaugurates the wedding feasts and opens the door. Maybe by changing the name of the parable we could actually get the point better. Rather than call it the parable of the wise and foolish virgins, maybe call it the parable of the generous groom. And if you don't want to be too scandalized, realize that he's got 10 brides, so that would be the generous polygamist groom. But even so, everything about the bride has already been given to her. That's already true at the beginning of the parable. They are virgins made holy in the forgiveness of sins. They are given lamps and oil and light for the time until he comes they are given to wait and to watch trusting in his promise yes and they all fall asleep or if you prefer die in faith laid to rest until the midnight call when he sends his heralds behold the bridegroom is coming go out to meet him and they all arise to meet him they are awakened to life again everything that he has already given is all that they need The promised wedding, the bath of water and the anointing of oil, the white garments of salvation, the food for the journey, the lamp for their feet, the light for their path, all a gift to them. But that's when the panic sets in for the foolish. They turn away from the bridegroom, from looking at him, trusting in what he has already given them, and they get caught up in thinking that they need something more. There's not enough oil for the journey. So what do they need? This is where that question comes up. What is the lamp and what is the oil? Do they need more faith, more grace, more of something? Jesus, the bridegroom? They must not have, he must not have done it all then. So what's left for them, the foolish, to do to make it those last few steps on the race to meet the bridegroom, the kingdom, to get to the wedding and to the feast? That's how a lot of people think about Eternal salvation in Christ. That Jesus begins it, but then it's up to us to, well, make those last few steps. Or maybe to make most of the steps, either way. But Jesus tells these parables not to drive you into despair, worry, or panic about the last day. He wants you to pay attention to what he has given. That he's made you virgins, forgiven. That he has granted you the light of his word that he sustains you each and every day in the faith, that He has made great and glorious promises for you. I'm coming, I'm coming soon. Come out to meet me. These promises are made to us from our baptism, as we heard uh, with regards to Jackson today. They're made to you. God has promised his spirit bestowed upon us in baptism to not only call us into faith, but to enlighten and to sanctify and to keep us in that faith today and always. He's already bestowed upon us all the gifts that are necessary to preserve us in that faith. Yes, our baptism, but also the word of forgiveness and his holy supper, his body and blood, food for the journey. Everything needed for salvation is already yours. That's the unanimous testimony of the scripture. And it even seems to be at odds with what Jesus says in today's gospel. And that's exactly what Jesus wants us to notice. No, Jesus, it's not about my oil. It's about what you are, who you are and what you have done for me. You have made me your holy bride. You have kept me in the faith. You've prepared a feast for me. Nothing can stand in the way of that. That's the answer to the parable. Who am I in this parable? I'm the one whom Jesus has redeemed. I might have even been a foolish one who for a time thought it was about me and what I needed to do. And even then, Jesus came along and found me wandering in the darkness with his light to bring me back to the path and to bring me into the feast. Yes, there is an end, finally, when the door is shut, but God grant that you all are guided and led by him into faith and kept in the faith as he has promised today and always. Behold, the bridegroom is coming. Go out to meet him. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.